0: On this episode of the Center for Ancient Christian Studies podcast, we will hear a panel discussion from Jarvis Williams of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Greg Cochran of California Baptist University, and Brian Litvin of the Moody Bible Institute. This event was hosted by the Center on September 14, 2015, at a conference called Martyrdom in the Early Church, Reality and Fiction. So we'll begin with uh, Dr. Williams, I've got really two or three questions. <laughs> that I'll throw your way. The first one is that, um, given the prevalence of the martyrological traditions that you have in 2 and 4 Maccabees, uh, does the New Testament, which is, you would argue, I think one of your books argues, uh, in uh, your study of Romans that there there are these traditions there, does the New Testament present our Lord Jesus as a martyr?
1: It's a great question. I would say, first of all, he's certainly more than a martyr. He is the, living, the, resur- the crucified, resurrected, living Lord. But I would argue, particularly with Paul, that Paul would use the Levitical cultic traditions, the Isaiahic cultic traditions, uh, particularly Isaiah 53, and he reads those traditions, I would argue, through a martyrological lens so that what you have in Paul, particularly in Romans 3.25, Romans 5, uh, 6 and following, Romans 8, 1 to 4. Paul is is presenting Jesus' Jesus's death along the lines of the Jewish monological narratives, but he's reconstructing those narratives to talk about the universal impact of Jesus' death that's unique for the nation. So my answer would be, that he's using those martyrological traditions alongside of these cultic traditions in Leviticus and also Isaiah 53, but he's he's reconstructing those traditions to make his theological argument for his particular
0: audience. So the sort of thing that developed in the 1920s in what's called the fundamentalist modernist controversy, where you would have more liberal scholars arguing or modernist scholars arguing that Jesus was a martyr, you would argue that that sort of uh, terminology is legitimate in the, uh, the New Testament, uh, that that doesn't obviate the idea of a penal substitutionary atonement.
1: Yes, because the way I define martyrdom, I define it as a person who is faced with some sort of a threat from the authority and he chooses to obey God instead of giving in to the pagan authority. And so martyrdom, in that sense, is what you find in 2 and 4 Maccabees. And so I would say he was certainly a martyr, but he was more than that. He was the crucified living Lord, so yeah, he was not merely an example, although he was, 1 Peter chapter 2, an example to be followed, but he's more than that. He's a, he's a sacrificial atonement for the sins of both Jews and Gentiles, and he's exalted at the right hand of God, sharing in Yahweh's divine identity.
0: How widely were 2 and, two and 4 Maccabees read? do you think?
1: Well, that's a great question. My argument is not, I suppose I should look this way, shouldn't I? Uh, my argument is not that Paul necessarily had uh, two and four Maccabees in front of him. Uh, I think that's highly unlikely with fourth Maccabees because scholars date fourth Maccabees as late as the first and second century. Uh, in fact, many say that it's dated to the second century and the, and the origin of the document is in, is in Antioch. Um, two Maccabees indisputably predates Paul, so I would argue at the very least the martyrological traditions that you find in 4th Maccabees uh, reflect what was in the air. And so, so texts represent worldviews, represent ideas. When they're codified, those ideas are in the air. You find those texts in 2 Maccabees that predates Paul. You find those mottological ideas in LXX Daniel 3. You also find them in the wisdom of Solomon chapter 3. So, so my argument is not that they were widely read; those textual traditions. The argument is the ideas represented in the traditions represents a stream of Jewish ideas within Second typical Judaism, the Judaism which
0: Paul uh, was part. And then, did either of you want to jump in on that, or either? Or, or the or the earlier question on. I, I would, but I don't know how to turn on my. It, it, it should be on.
2: Is it on? Oh, yeah, okay. There you go. Oh, it's magic. Okay. <laughs> Um, I kept looking for the on button and I couldn't find it. There's not one. I I um I'm not an expert on it like Dr. Williams, but I mean, from what I perceive the the Martise language, where you've got the idea of the witness, someone bearing witness and shedding their blood, so witnessing to the point of dying, is sort of first used in the Book of Revelation. So um, to apply it to Jesus, I I I see kind of the way that. Is being used as a category along with others. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it would necessarily be a good thing if we thought of Christ as a martyr. I, I think of. I think of that as a different kind of figure. I think of the martyr uh, as one testifying to to Christ and And sort of dying to that point, so then to have Jesus, I guess you could say he 's testifying to to God the Father or something like that but i i I would want to put christ 's uh, meaning and death in something much more than a martyr or um, a, a, like a Greek noble death type tradition or something like that although i i wouldn 't disagree that that could be a box, but I would really put that i would really sublimate that category to some of the other Uh, sacrificial and other potential other categories, um, uh, victory over Satan or something like that, as being the sort of main uh, characterizations of who Jesus was and what he did.
1: Yeah, let me clarify. I think we need to make a distinction between Jewish martyrology and Christian martyrology. So I would argue that the martus idea, or martyretto, testifying to Christ, is a Christian martyrological statement, whereas Jesus is a a martyr along the Jewish martyrological lines. So, that the idea is not that he's testifying to himself. Uh, the idea is he, is he is testifying to God. He's the Torah observant Jew. But the argument I'm also making is, is that his death is not merely a patriotic noble death. I'm actually arguing that Paul is using, because I'm arguing to him for Maccabees, actually are presenting him as a penal, yeah, presenting right, the martyr right, as a penal right, substitutionary right, atonement. Right. So, I'm arguing that Paul is using. Uh, Leviticus and Isaiah 53, the same way those texts are used in the Jewish morological traditions, and he's reappropriating those texts and reconstructing those texts to make his theological argument to emphasize the saving efficacy of Jesus's death, so that the idea is not that Jesus is testifying to himself. He is the martyr par excellence, because he accomplishes salvation not just for Jews, uh, Allah and for Maccabees, but for Jews and Gentiles
2: yeah that makes a lot of sense, and especially in light of, of what was presented in the paper about the Jewish concept, including atonement and expiation for the nation, then then you've meld, you've melted quite well the concept of the martyr and and the atoning sacrifice so in
3: that sense you it's almost like he fulfills martyrdom because he now it's now consummated in its Jewish sense and takes on an entirely new Christian sense
1: after that well, I'm not arguing that exactly okay. I'm, I'm <laughs> arguing. Here's, here's my agenda. Let me just put yeah. my cards on the table. I'm arguing against a large liberal scholarly contingent that Jesus' death was not pagan, it was right. Jewish, and and the ideas of substitution are Jewish categories, and it's not, it was not foreign to Judaism for Jews to die as substitutes for Jews so that Paul is using an actual Jewish idea when he presents Jesus as a representation and a substitution for Jews and Gentiles. That's not pagan, right. contrary to what many liberal scholars have argued. That's not Greco-Roman, that is Jewish, even though it reflects some of the ideas you find in Greco-Roman literature. Once Paul appropriates the tradition from a Jewish monological narrative, he is making it a Jewish Christian tradition, you see. Does that yes. make sense?
3: Yes. yes. Yeah, so, so uh, the, the question in one sense is, anachronistic because we ask backwards through what we understand martyrdom yes. to be, and that was, that's exactly what our first instinct was, right? So it's a bit anachronistic to look back that way and ask about martyrdom, but there was a sense of martyrdom that he came out of that was Judaism, but he still stands unique.
1: Correct. Okay. Uh, and, and, and I would say I would say it's not anachronistic to talk about, to talk about martyrdom, martyrdom as martyrdom is defined in, in the Jewish martyrologies. Right. Right. But right? But we look back
3: as Christians in the in the after developed Christian theology of martyrdom.
2: Yeah. That's
3: a, that's all I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, that yeah, was yeah. our first yeah. instinct. Yeah.
2: Where you see that, uh, just very briefly, where you, where you would see a huge distinction between Jesus and martyrs would be in in the Epistle to the Hebrews, where in Hebrews eleven you have this. Those of whom the world was not worthy, those that, had, that uh, suffered and died, many think maybe even reflecting uh, uh, the, the Maccabean martyrs there in that language, well, and categorically in a different place than Jesus as he's presented in the book of Hebrews. So really a huge <clears throat> distinction between heroes of the faith who kept the faith and Jesus, the exalted one, that one finds with the high Christology in, in Hebrews.
1: Yeah. So Romans 5-7, for example, In Romans 5.7, Paul says, Rarely would someone die for a righteous man. Perhaps for a good man, one would even dare to die. That's Mm -hmm. Greco-Roman noble death right there in 5.7. But that's not the death that Jesus dies. He dies an ignoble death. He dies not merely a patriotic death. He dies a penal, substitutionary death for sinners, which Paul outlines in five six, five eight nine, eight one to one to four, and then also in three twenty four and twenty five. And so, what I'm suggesting is, is the kind of death that Paul suggests that Jesus has de- uh, died is greater than the Maccabean martyrs, but more like that than the Greco-Roman heroic death. Is that more helpful?
0: Let me turn yeah. to the uh, paper that uh, Dr. Cochran yes, gave us in terms of Matthew. Uh, do you think that Matthew perceives persecution and obviously it's its uh, resultant martyrdom as a, as a mark of the church uh,
3: that 's an interesting question there 's a, a book on Mark um, hubby wrote uh, saying that Mark presents it that way, that he actually sees it as a uh, the church as a martyr church, um, of course. Uh, Gundry's book, his commentary on Matthew, sort of makes that, that this is a, a handbook for those suffering persecution. Um, how does he see that as a church? Uh, Gun- Gundry's latest work leans that way as well. So um, uh, actually, want to give some on, detail. Yeah,
0: Robert Gundry has come out with a fairly, I think, fairly controversial work regarding Peter yeah. in the Gospel of Matthew. Maybe you could that say Peter
3: that. has apostatized. And that Matthew presents him, uh, the picture that Matthew presents of him is one of an, uh, of an apostate and a false disciple. And so in Matthew's world, a disciple would mean faithful, righteous, and Peter at the end is so de-emphasized and so, the, the language is so strongly against him that Peter uh, actually is, proves to be a false disciple. So the flip side of that would be your question then, does Matthew understand the church? and true disciple and true disciples to be martyr church or persecuted. I'm I'm preferring the term persecuted. persecuted. So yes, I think he does uh, for the reasons that I outlined in in this way. He does see that anytime you're going to to be under the authority of Christ you're going to be at cross authority with other authorities in the world. Not necessarily that you will face persecution but that but that you are in cross-allegiances that may, in fact, cause persecution. So, uh, I'm sorry, I, I've no, got another I, thought, but that's okay.
0: Yeah, so Matthew then would chime in with the passage I read right at the beginning on 1 Timothy 3. Yes, he, he would be okay with believer that, I think. is uh, suffering persecution.
3: I think he would be okay with that. Um, I don't, it's interesting because in Gundry's new book, when he, when he covers the Sermon on the Mount, the passage that I covered, actually, I think he's, i got to say this carefully, I think he's brilliant in the aspect that he treats on part of the Beatitudes and part of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount uh, because he, like most people don't see, he sees persecution as a key theme that knits together the Sermon on the Mount. I I did a little bit of that here. I don't go as far as he goes because he, he actually takes all of the characters, the characteristics, the virtues, in the Beatitudes and spells them out in terms of persecution and says that's Matthew's intention to, to actually say, you know, the meek are meek because they remain true under persecution. The the poor are poor. I think he's right about the poor. Um, the poor and the, the persecuted are both promised the kingdom in the first Beatitude and in the eighth Beatitude. It's kind of a a full-orbed inclusio, right? And so in that sense, they probably are poor because they're persecuted. That's, that's a, got a long history in the Old Testament where if you're the righteous, you're suffering. And so there is that element, but I think he goes a little too far. That was all I was going to follow up with.
0: And then let me turn to the, the final paper. The final paper uh, addressed a book uh, uh, a number of times uh, written by Candida Moss. Candida Moss is the... Uh, Professor of New Testament uh, currently at the University of Notre Dame. And my first contact with her scholarship was through the book Myth, Myth of Persecution, published by Hart of Collins. I think it's been a fairly big seller. Uh, when I initially read it, it, I kind of felt it was kind of a Da Vinci Code <laughs> right. kind of thriller. <laughs> and then I realized that she had an incredible background and in pedigree in terms of scholarship. She's an Oxford D. Phil, has done work on the uh, martyrdom of Polycarp. In essence, as uh, Dr. Um, uh, Lifton indicated, she argues that there are only six genuine accounts of martyrdom in the first 300 years, and then she does uh, what we call, what New Testament scholars used to call form criticism to demonstrate that none of these are really reliable, and that the whole thing of the persecution is being made up by uh, mostly Eusebius of Caesarea, gets the blame. He's the fall guy in the fourth century. <laughs> and he has various kind of power issues that are going on. Um, and I think what you indicated was a very helpful response to that. Uh, in some of now, the apocryphal gospels, I mean, the, 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 the three that you looked at, uh, to what degree are they not, are, are they, do they have elements of Gnosticism in them? Yeah.
2: Well, they do. They're, they're shot through. But you got to remember they're redacted texts. So it's actually the, uh, the part that's least like that are the martyrdom stories, which are tending to be more like classic uh, fiction, fiction tales. And, and then you can usually see where, for example, like I was talking about, you've got a speech all of a sudden inserted or you've got a hymn that gets stuck in or something, you can usually see that piece that gets stuck in. So so they are shot through with martyrdom, uh, with uh, Gnosticism and in Kratite uh, uh, ethical uh, sort of negativity towards sexuality and marriage which could be called Gnostic maybe but is reflecting something broader than that. But the martyrdom stories are the least, if I could call it, infected by that kind of viewpoint. So they just read like good, uh, exciting tales. And so whatever historical kernel is there, you can try to tease that out. But those are the parts that aren't heavily Gnostic.
0: When I uh, was, and still do, when I worked through Gnosticism, uh, when I was taught it, uh, one of the emphases that came through among a number of scholars, even people like Elaine Pagels, was that Gnostics didn't have martyrs. Right. So I've your, what your scholarship has been very helpful because I would never have thought of reading the apocryphal gospels, uh, apocryphal, apocryphal Acts. Like I did read some of the Acts yep. of John, right? And there's no martyrdom account there. Right. So I wouldn't have been expecting in any of the others a martyrdom account. How did you get into reading the Acts of uh, these apocryphal I, Acts?
2: I think it came when when I uh, published with Baker early Christian martyr stories and. I, this the genesis of that book is interesting. I, I uh, originally proposed it to Bethany House as a kind of Christian encouragement book, which Bethany House publishers would be more in that orbit, but they were sort of scared that it would be still too academic, and so they pushed it over to Baker Academic, and they said, yeah, we, we want that, but then if you're going to do that, you can't just have... Christian tales that are very reliable, you actually kind of need to include all the relevant literature, so that 's when they you know it got put in that we would put part of second Maccabees in there, and that 's when uh, it got put in, and this was my own doing because I, I thought, well, this will illustrate apart from the whether or not they 're true, like the stuff that I described, I think you got the sense that. Okay, there's legend there. These, you know, milk shooting out of Paul's neck and uh Peter upside down and all of that that might be true, but in any case, it's clearly legend, but it's still reflective of what the culture thought in the 2nd century about martyrdom. So, I as I was saying, I I didn't really worry about the gnostic parts of it because those tend to show up in other places. Um the main thing that I was looking at as the martyrdom story as a story. Whether or not it reflects historical realities is not the point I was making. And so it seemed like a really valid illustration of what people were talking about uh, in the late second century. Okay.
0: One general question, and then uh, we have time maybe to take two or three from the audience. I'm, I want to keep an eye on the clock. We did indicate the uh, time would finish at 9.30. So. Uh, what is, the, what is the significance of your scholarship that you presented uh, here tonight for, uh, for the church today? So maybe start with Jarvis and then uh, Dr. Cochran and then Dr. Lipton.
1: With my research, I spend a lot of my time thinking about Pauline soteriology and I think often we as Christians, we bring dogmatic categories to the Bible and we don't set the Bible in its ancient historical context. and I think the, the work I'm trying to do is set matters of uh, soteriology in Paul and matters of race and ethnicity in, in Paul in its ancient uh, Jewish context so that we can have a better framework as to how what the text actually says can apply to these modern-day problems. So for me, I think spending a lot of time waiting, weighing through, uh, working through 2 and 4 Maccabees actually helps my New Testament work. Uh, Same thing with Judaism. I spend most of my time reading ancient primary text uh, pretty much all day during the summers and thinking of how these texts are influential with regard to how the New Testament authors understand sociology and and matters related to race. So for me, uh, I think I
3: spelled it out in the paper actually. I want you, all of you, to think about persecution. I want you to understand it. I want you to help other Christians to understand it because even today the majority of Christians who are alive are living with the real anxiety of possibly losing their homes, losing their families, losing their primary caregiver to prison or to death. Um, the rest of the world is living this reality now and I think we even in, at the church level our people are starting to face problems at work, starting to get, get some real pressure from their supervisors at work and I think there's a real need for the church to define clearly what persecution is and what it means to be blessed in terms of persecution so I it's
2: it's for the church that I do what I do so I, I resonate with that and I I wholeheartedly agree and would like that to be forefront as well and in a roundabout way what I was trying to do tonight is to support that goal uh, because what Dr. Moss does despite being a, a very, very fine scholar um, but this, this book, Myth of Persecution really tries to sort of knock down the whole concept that, that Christians are persecuted and how, how dare anybody claim this mantle of persecution and so she's attacking uh, ancient texts um, to sort of take away the concept of the persecuted church and, and so that's not right Christians are persecuted. Christians are under heinous, evil persecution, and there is a sense in which that has been often the case, because the name of Jesus Christ is offensive, and people will kill for it, and they did it in the ancient world, and they're doing it today. And so I take issue with the attempt to rob Christians of the concept that they have been horribly persecuted, whether in ancient times or today. I think Dr. Moss does that. But but really, I mean, I would take that concept on in terms of the evidence. I think the case that she makes for post a lot of these, these six authentic texts cannot really be sustained when one looks at the exact kind of evidence that was laid out here tonight, showing there is good reason to see an early martyrdom complex uh, concept right in the New Testament, right in the early 2nd century, all the way through developing. And so a martyr like Polycarp is well situated. He's real. He's not a pious fraud as is made out uh, by Dr. Moss. Um, there, there's good evidence historiographically and historically to think that those texts are authentic and that Christians were persecuted in the ancient church.
0: Well, we do have time maybe for a couple of questions uh, from the audience, so if you have something, I'll repeat the question, uh, if you could speak up loudly enough, and, because uh, this is all being recorded. Dr. Nettles? So where would the uh, psychology of justice fit in with your basic yep. argument
2: for the reality mm-hmm.
0: Let me, let me repeat the question. Okay. So the question was, uh, where does uh, Justin Martyr's second apology fit in uh, along with his own death?
2: Yeah, so the, the second apology is the martyrdom of Ptolemy and Lucius and then the uh, acts of Justin. The, those are two of the six texts that uh, Dr. Moss, for example, would include as being those authentic ones. But the case she makes uh, in her book, Myth of Persecution, is to do the same thing that she does with Polycarp with the martyrs of Lyon and Vienne and the others is to push those off into the Decian period and thus uh, discount them as being uh, legitimate. Uh, however, I would hold that they are properly situated in the second century, the same as I would say with, with Polycarp. You look, for example, at the Acts of Justin and the, 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 the original, there's three versions of that text, but the earliest and shortest is uh, bears a lot of earmarks of being legitimate and Second Apology as well is another piece that would show this was happening. And so it just, all these pieces come together to give us a robust sense of of martyrdom as an important concept in the second century. And so I would situate those texts right where they claim to be, which is the late second century.
0: Question. Let oh, me, sorry, yeah. So the question was uh, when uh, Dr. Williams said that Christ died an uh, ignoble death in the dealing with the Romans five passage uh, uh, as opposed to the idea of a noble death uh, was that, was he, in that was he unique? in that aspect?
1: Yes, and that is in fact the argument Paul is making. I think the the patriotic death in the Greco Roman world was a death for the noble city state. You have these sorts of statements made in a variety of Greco-Roman authors, but Paul says Christ died for sinners. He died for the unrighteous, not for the righteous. So his death is unique not because he died on a cross, many people died on a cross, but because he died, as the God-man of course, but he died for unrighteous people and took upon himself their unrighteousness. And that's what makes it ignoble. It's not for, it's not for a noble cause, namely, it's not for the patriotic, good, honorable city. It's for ungodly, weak sinners, Romans
0: 5, 6, and 8. And maybe one last question. So the question was uh, how can we move from uh, the academic presentation of these uh, events from the past to the present day preaching of the gospel in the pulpit uh, retaining the the, 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 ne- the necessity of, 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 of a fire uh, of, of passion regarding these issues?
3: Can I, uh, it wasn't to me specifically, thank you for that. Um, and the only reason I'm saying that is I, our, the ministry that we're working on that Sean mentioned is called PAUSE, P-A-U-S-E. We want Christians to pause for the persecuted church, but it's prayer, awareness, understanding, service, and empathy. And so, in other words, the, the ultimate aim is to identify with the persecuted church, to to actually recognize ourselves as the persecuted church because even if in our immediate context we're not persecuted, still the majority of contexts where Christians are, are suffering persecution. And so uh, just to know ourselves that way, it's, it's an identity thing. It's, it's, you know, Hebrews 13, 3, that uh, remember them who are in prison as though in prison with them, since you yourselves are in the body. It's an identification with the the, the actual church. And I think that then feeds when you go back through and you start realizing, all, practically every New Testament writer writes from a perspective of persecution, has something to say about it, has something to teach the church, and as you're preaching and teaching and these things are, are in re, real time, it comes out that way, I think. That's our hope with, our, with the ministry that we're going to be starting at Pause for the Persecuted.
1: I would say as well, just being, stay grounded in the local church. I mean, the Lord uses his church to carry out his mission and being involved in a gospel centered church that exalts God, points you vertical for the purpose of horizontal transformation is, is one of the reasons why I love doing what I do because I I see it as a means by which to help build up the church. So stay grounded in the local church.
0: Well, let me uh, thank each of our speakers and maybe you can show your thanks as well for this evening.